0: Uh, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But before that, I have a question for you. Do you, uh, do you ever read the tabloid headlines when you're waiting uh, at the checkout line? Anybody? Raise your hand nice and high. We're in church, so don't lie. My hand is raised. You know, we, we all need a little bit of levity when we are waiting, and the tabloid headlines, of course, provide that for us. Uh, so I want to read you some of my favorite tabloid headlines. Okay, these are real tabloid headlines. I'm not making these up. Fat cat owns 23 old ladies. (laughs) Satan captured by G.I.s in Iraq. Jesus' action figure heals the sick. And here's my favorite one. Severed leg hops to hospital. (laughs) Great. Isn't that great? Wonderful tabloids. Tabloids are awfully silly, of course, um, but certain news headlines are very serious, right? They're on the opposite end of the spectrum as the tabloid headlines. One of the reasons they're serious is because, of course, they're true. But another reason some of these news headlines that we look at, that we hear, another reason they're serious is because they impact us. They have a significant impact on our lives, Now think about where you were and perhaps what you were feeling when these things, when these news events happened. 9-11, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the assassination of JFK, the first moon landing, D-Day, Now, of course, some of us weren't alive for these events, but we all know that these events had a significant impact, not only on our lives or our little towns or the state or the nation, but the world. I mean, these are world-altering events, all of them. You know, what would life be like today if 9-11 never happened? Or if D-Day wasn't successful? Or the Berlin Wall was still up? But these events are minuscule in their importance and their impact when you put them side by side with the greatest event that has ever occurred in history, which is Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. No newsworthy event since the beginning of time has altered the course of history as much as Jesus coming to earth, dying a brutal death on the cross, and then being raised to new life after three days. Nothing even comes close. Nothing has sent so many massive ripples throughout history, whether we realize it or not. Now, when the New Testament writers, when they talk about the events surrounding Jesus, they use the word gospel, which means literally good news. You probably heard that before. The gospel about Jesus isn't just interesting news that you and I might be moved by. It's not just good advice. You know, good advice, you know, try this and your life may be better. The gospel announces that God has come to die, to be raised again for sinners. The gospel is something different. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 If you've been with us, you know we've been studying this book, I think, since last September. And the Corinthian church was a a very happening place. It was a vibrant church. A lot of things were going on in the church. If you were uh, in the Corinthian church back in the first century, you'd be pretty excited. You'd be pretty engaged. But they were also a very messed up church, as we know. And so Paul's goal as he wrote this letter was to kind of press the gospel deeper and deeper into the minds and the hearts and the lives of the Corinthians so that the gospel would reshape them and reshape their lives. They had gospel amnesia, which is why Paul says the first words here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. They had gospel amnesia. Now, the Corinthians aren't the only ones who have gospel amnesia. We, too, have gospel amnesia. We desperately need to be reminded of the good news. And we have the privilege this morning of being reminded, of hearing again the good news. So let's read this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us great insight into this passage. We know that without your Spirit we cannot see the depths of the gospel that Paul speaks of here. And so, would you minister to us? You know that uh, each of us have different cares and burdens and uh, concerns as we come into this place. Would you speak to us, Lord, out of the riches of your glorious gospel? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there are three truths in this passage I want to pull out. Three truths about the gospel. Here's the first truth. The first two verses. The gospel is foundational for the Christian life. The gospel is foundational for the Christian life. For the Christian life. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. Now wait a second, Paul. I thought the gospel is just Christianity 101. Notice first the Corinthians received the gospel. They heard it, they believed it, they threw themselves on the mercy of Christ. Okay, we get that. That's Christianity 101. But then look what Paul says: which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So the Corinthian church took their stand on the gospel. The gospel isn't just something we interact with or interacted with in the past, it has present force, it has present power, it has present energy in our lives. But beyond that, look at verse 2. By this gospel, you are saved. Or more literally, by this gospel, you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the word, which is the gospel I preach to you. They will be saved by this gospel if they continue to hold fast. So it's possible then to hear the gospel, maybe even to believe it on some level, but to not really hold fast to or stand on the gospel. But Paul here, he's saying, listen, you guys got to build your life on the gospel. He is describing a life that is totally gospel-saturated and gospel-oriented. Receive the gospel, stand on the gospel, hold firmly to the gospel. Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York City, said that the gospel isn't just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Zs of Christianity. You don't get the gospel, and then you move on to something deeper and richer and more exciting and more insightful. You get the gospel, and then you learn to build your life around the gospel. You let it get deeper and deeper into your hearts and lives. It's it's how Christians begin, it's how we continue, and it's how we finish the race. It's not just the runner's blocks that kind of propel us through the beginning part of the race. It's everything that we need. It's all of the energy, all of the resources, everything that we need to get us started, to get us through the middle of the race, and to send us home at the finish line. That's what the gospel does. That's how the gospel should function in our lives. Is this how the gospel functions in your life? Is this how the gospel functions in your life? Have you received the gospel with faith and repentance? How many of you have? And if you have, do you build your life on the gospel? Do you hold firmly to the gospel every day? Do you stand upon the gospel? In your marriage, do you stand upon the gospel? When you're going through something difficult and painful and a heavy trial, Do you stand upon the gospel? When you're confused or depressed, do you find hope in the gospel? When you're angry or proud or bitter, do you find humility in the gospel? Or have we moved past the gospel to something bigger and better and more exciting? Friends, there is nothing, there is nothing in the Christian faith bigger or better or more exciting than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the foundation for the Christian life. But what exactly is the gospel? What is the gospel? That's what the next few verses talk about, verses 3 through 8. And you know, I bet some of us in this room only get the gospel half right. Let's find out whether my theory is correct. So verse 3, for what I received, Paul says, I passed on to you as of first importance. There's nothing more important than what he's about to say. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared. So of course now Jesus takes center stage because he is the gospel, right? Right? Notice the four verbs that nicely summarize the gospel in these first couple of verses. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. And Christ appeared. And really, we can put these verbs in pairs because Christ's burial really supports the idea that Christ really did die. And Christ's appearances to all these people supports and upholds the idea that Christ really did rise from the grave. So here's the second truth that we learn from this passage. The gospel is about Jesus' death and his resurrection. The gospel is about Jesus' death and his resurrection. So it's not first about what we can do. It's first about what Christ has already done for us. And I think sometimes we get that confused. That's where the Christian life begins, with Jesus and his work on behalf of sinners. And the first part of that work, as we see here in verse 3, is that Christ died for our sins. Now, here's the part we probably know really well. If you've grown up in the church, gone to Sunday school, come to Sunday services, you you hear this part often, Christ died for your sin. Even if you are not a Christian this morning and you're here, I'm so glad you're here, and you're just getting to know this Christianity thing. You've probably heard this message before. Christ died for sinners. And that's where the gospel starts. But there is more. There is more. Verse 4 says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Christ rose again. Now, this is really important because the Corinthian church didn't believe it. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. Paul says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? They didn't believe in the fullness of Christ's resurrection or the future bodily resurrection of Christians. They had trouble believing that. So what is Paul doing here? He is trying to establish that the resurrection is central to the gospel message. It is really central to the gospel message. It's not an afterthought. It's not an optional add on. It is right there alongside his death the cross and the empty tomb. That's the gospel. Now, notice that this new story is verifiable according to Paul. He mentions all of these witnesses of the resurrection. You know, it happened in history, it's rooted in human history. A good reporter listens to eyewitness reports, right? And so he tells the Corinthian church, listen, if you don't believe me, go talk to some of these people. Some of them are alive. You can go talk to them about the resurrection of Jesus. So where are we so far? The gospel is the wonderful announcement that Jesus has died and rose again for sinners. But there's still more. Notice that all of this happened according to the Scriptures. His death, according to the Scriptures. His resurrection, according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures. So put a finger here, and I want to show you where uh, where we see that in the Old Testament. So turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Uh, It's on page 731 in your pew Bible. This chapter is all about the Messiah, the suffering servant. We're not going to have a lot of time to read through this passage, but I'd encourage you to meditate on these verses. They're powerful. So first we're going to look at verse 5 and 6. But he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, the suffering servant, the Messiah in the Old Testament, he would come and he would die for sinners. He would take on the penalty of their sins. Now look at verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the Lord, uh, excuse me, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And so the suffering servant doesn't only die for sinners, the suffering servant will be vindicated. He will be rewarded after his death with life and rain. That's what we see here. So in other words, these incredible acts of love and brutality, of injustice and eventual glory, they all happen according to God's plan. God set these things in motion hundreds, thousands of years before they actually occurred. It weren't an accident. He put this thing together. He wrote this story for us. Okay. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. So we've established what the gospel is, Jesus' death and resurrection, but why is this good news? Why is this good news? We've hinted at it already. Jesus' death Paid the penalty for our sins, right? The gavel has dropped. We are acquitted, totally acquitted from all of the horrors of hell and the judgments of hell. We're totally forgiven. So, for Christians, the Father's word is: I will. If the Father's word is not: I will deal with you as you have done, but rather: I have atoned for you for all that you have done. You see the difference there? It's really important. This is the work of the cross. This is the work of the cross. But the gospel work is not complete until we think about the resurrection. Christ's bodily resurrection means we're not just forgiven, but we have new life. It means we're not only acquitted from hell, but we are accepted. We are accepted into God's presence. And we are lavished with gifts and blessings and privileges and positions. It means we're not only pulled out of Satan's family, no longer children of wrath, but we are now sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. We were once terrorists. We were once nasty, awful terrorists who tried to usurp the king's rule. But then... We were not only acquitted of all crimes, but we were pulled into the king's inner circle, treated just like his sons, and given a special seat at his table. This is why the resurrection is so important. It tells us we have new life in Christ. Resurrection was so central to the early church that tradition says that first century Christians, they would greet each other by saying, the Lord is risen. And then they would say back, what would they say back? Yeah, amen. You know, sometimes we have the tendency to minimize the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's not that we don't believe it necessarily, but it's more that we don't recognize its importance. It doesn't have maybe functional power in our lives. But here Paul says, if we deny the resurrection, if we ignore the resurrection, we deny the gospel. So if you're talking to your neighbor about Jesus and you're going on and on about his wonderful life and how he loved people, which he did, and then you move to his his amazing death and how his death for sinners was just so incredible, which it is, but you forget to tell them about his resurrection. You haven't preached the gospel. They need to hear both sides of the good news. You can be forgiven in Christ And you can have a new life in Christ. You can be changed because of Christ. Nothing is more life-changing or world-altering than these twin pillars of the gospel, the cross and the resurrection, forgiveness and new life. This is the apex of Christianity. Let me ask you, is this the gospel that you preach? Is this the gospel that you preach to yourself? That brings us to the last point. The gospel radically transforms people. The gospel radically transforms people. Look at verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles, says Paul. And do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Paul's life was radically transformed by the gospel that he preached. Radically transformed. One moment, he's killing Christians and organizing the downfall of the Christian faith. A few moments later, he's on a dusty road to Damascus, and he encounters the living Jesus Christ. And nothing would be the same again for Paul. Nothing. Not only did God change his occupation from Christian killer to apostle and church planner, but God, perhaps more importantly, changed his heart. Do you see it? In these verses, notice first that he is extraordinarily humble. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, not deserving to be an apostle. You see, the gospel makes us humble. Proud Christian is an oxymoron. Paul is not feeling here a a sense of entitlement. He knows that everything he is, every honor he has, as an apostle, is because of God's grace. It's not based in any way on his seedy past as a Christian killer or on his position as a big-shot apostle. His sinful past, his amazing accomplishments, which were many, his failures, his weaknesses, his foibles, all of them mean nothing at the foot of the cross and before the empty tomb. And so he says... By the grace of God, I am what I am. Grace defines Paul now. Not his sinful past, not his accomplishments, not his weaknesses, not his failure. Everything is swept aside at the foot of the cross and before the empty tomb. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Can we say that with any sort of authenticity this morning? Can you say that? I am okay because of gospel grace. That is what defines me now. That is what I associate myself with and identify myself with now. Nothing else. Do we have that kind of gospel-oriented self-acceptance in our lives as we wake up Monday morning? Or have we lost the functioning power of the gospel and then we end up so emotionally fragile on Monday morning? Listen, without the gospel, you've got two paths that you're going to walk. Two paths. Your path will either be the pursuit of inflating your ego, building up your accomplishments and money and successes and so on, and you're going to die empty. That's the first path. The second path is you're going to pursue nursing your insecurities and numbing your pain. And that's going to end badly too. That path ends with depression and, unfortunately, for some, suicide. The gospel takes us off both of these paths by the way of the cross and resurrection. You see, Paul was emotionally healthy. He was emotionally healthy because he went deep into the riches of the gospel. If you're a gospel-oriented person, Christian, You have a realistic appraisal of yourself. You don't deny who you are. You don't deny your past. You have a realistic appraisal of yourself, and you have a robust view of God's grace to you in Christ Jesus. If you press the gospel like Paul did into into our hearts, if we do this, we will be protected from the dangers of both pride and insecurity. And we will be humble. Notice also that the gospel didn't just transform Paul's inner life, his attitudes. It transformed his goals and his mission and even his work ethic. Look again at the passage. Verse 10, the last half. His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, all of the apostles. I worked harder than them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see, the gospel doesn't make us passive. It makes us active. It moves us to work hard, to be disciplined, to strive hard after the things of God. That's what the gospel does. The uh, the grace of the gospel, it activates us. Now, what is Paul here working hard towards? What should we be working hard towards? Look again at verse 3. What I received, I passed on. We should be working hard at passing on the gospel. And what is he trying to help the Corinthians do? Well, as we saw in the first couple of verses, he's trying to help them stand firm on the gospel and to hold firmly to it for a lifetime. So God's grace activates us so that we are going to be making disciples. The the gospel not only humbles us and gives us a healthy sense of self, it certainly does that, but it energizes us and pushes us and motivates us so that we will preach the gospel, we will pass the gospel on, so that we will help one another hold firmly and stand upon the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, is the grace of God active in your life so that you are working hard at disciple-making? The gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection transformed Paul from the inside out. It began in his heart. It extended to his words and actions and mission and life goals. And this is what it does in our lives as well. The gospel utilizes the twin graces of forgiveness from the cross and new life from the resurrection. You see, Paul wasn't just forgiven. He didn't just grab his ticket to heaven and, and, and sit on his bottom. He was a different person. He had new life. Now, is that your experience? Is that your experience? As I talk to Christians, and frankly, as I listen to myself whine, I get the sense that it's easy for us to feel defeated in the Christian life. It's impossible to kill the sin of lust. It's impossible for me to overcome my pride. It's impossible to be so selfless like Jesus. It's impossible to love that really hard person to love over there. And so I just need to make sure things don't get too out of hand. I need to make sure I manage my life and the consequences of my sin. And as long as I make progress occasionally, I'm okay. And you know what? If I don't make progress, it's okay because I'm under the grace of the cross. I am forgiven. If you've heard yourself say something along those lines, you only believe half the gospel. You only believe half the gospel. You may give intellectual assent to the resurrection of Christ and in two weeks, your hands may be in the air because you are praising God because he is alive But the gospel that says resurrection is central to it is not functioning in your life. You're feeling defeated and discouraged when you could be experiencing new life and real, lasting change. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that you are a new person in Christ and that you can really change now? Ephesians chapter 1, I think it's verse 19 and 20, it teaches us, you don't have to turn there, but it teaches us that the same power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in Christians, is at work in you. So you have access to resurrection power every single day. Do you tap into that? Or are you going to give in to being and feeling defeated? So let's review. Three truths about the gospel. Number one, the gospel is foundational for the Christian life. It's foundational for the Christian life. Number two, the gospel is all about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And number three, the gospel radically transforms us because we have access to resurrection power. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope you heard the best news in the world. God sent his son, Jesus, to die for sinners. He was raised again so that those very same sinners may have new life and have changed lives. And so you can be forgiven and you can have a changed life. So let me implore you to receive this good news with faith, which is trust or belief, and repentance, which is a turning from your sin and looking at the face of Jesus, your Savior. It's something you don't have to wait to do. You can do right now in your very uh, seats. If you are a Christian here this morning, I hope you heard the best news in the world again. God sent his son Jesus to die for you. He raised his son to new life for you so that you can have new lives. So you've received this gospel, but have you taken your stand on it? Do you build your life around this gospel? Do you build your life around the twin pillars of the cross and resurrection? Do you hold firmly to it? Do you draw strength from it? Brothers and sisters, don't be someone who only believes half the gospel. Because if you do, you will miss out on so much that God has for you in this life. Let me pray. Father, we praise you first for your word which again and again brings us back to the foundations of the Christian life, which is the gospel. And I pray that you would help each of us in this room to find out how we relate to this wonderful message, to pull us in closer and teach us more about this gospel. And Father, we do praise you because you sent your son Jesus to die and to be raised again so that we may have new life, so we can sit with you at your table. We can be your sons and daughters. Father, what wonderful news, what amazing news. We praise you, we thank you. We really don't have enough words to thank you. And Father, would you teach us what it looks like to build our lives around this gospel. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.